Well, this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 11. We are continuing our series entitled The Hall of Faith. And this morning we are looking at the inductee of Moses. Of course, Moses is one of the great individual characters of the Old Testament, and much is spoken about him throughout the New Testament. But today, as we continue on in Hebrews chapter 11, we come to the realization that Moses was capable by faith to see the invisible. What a statement that is. And what does it mean? Because in the wake of understanding what it means for Moses to have seen the invisible, he was, in, he was able to endure such incredible hardship while he was here on this earth resisting the very Pharaoh himself in which he grew up with. He was part of the uh, dynasty which the uh, Pharaoh came from, being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, being raised in the home of Pharaoh. Now he is able to stand in faith against the wrath and the anger of Pharaoh that was to come upon him. And in so doing, standing against the anger of Pharaoh, he was able to endure and to press on. And it goes on to tell us that he did so because he saw him who was invisible. To do so, to stand in that faith, he needed to overcome an aspect of our lives that all of us at one time or another struggle and contend with. And that is fear. Fear is the uh, opposite of faith. It is the antagonist to faith. Fear can motivate you to do what you don't want to do. And it can keep you from doing what you need to do. Fear can be paralyzing. If you've struggled with fear, you know what I'm talking about. Fear is one of those things that we seem to contend with often in our Christian lives. As one stated, and as we will read later on in the time together this morning, that fear is one of the greatest weapons that Satan can use to keep you from all that God has for you. So the question then becomes, as a believer in Jesus Christ, how do I overcome that fear to allow me to enjoy the blessings and the leadings and the doors in which God has opened before me? How can I overcome that fear? Again, fear is a reality in everyone's life in one degree or another. But many are surprised that once they become Christians, fear becomes even more intensive in many regards. Again, it's the catalyst in which Satan would restrain you from moving forward in your Christian life. It is that aspect in which God would then uh, try to show you and to encourage you to overcome. And the means by which we overcome fear is faith. But how do we do that? How does that happen? How does that transpire in our life? Again, standing before this inductee, Moses, here in the Hall of Faith, and of course we are paralleling this chapter with a Hall of Fame, looking at the different individuals that God has brought to our attention, illustrated there for us here in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. We are now realizing that even Moses, the great deliverer himself, struggled with fear. 
In fact, it tells us very clearly that the reason Moses left Egypt at 40 years old was due to the fact that he was afraid. He was afraid of the king and the wrath that would come upon him for killing the Egyptian and delivering a Hebrew from his embrace. But 40 years later, Moses will leave Egypt again, and this time with a finality. The first time as he ran from Egypt in fear, Egypt still placated his mind. It still was a part of his thinking. It was his identity as an individual. That identity need to be rewritten by God as he spent those 40 years in Midian, as he became a shepherd, as you know, he was a prince of Egypt with the wealth and all the pomp and circumstance and power that went with it. And now he is a lowly shepherd there in Midian, part of a nomadic group of people moving from place to place and finding refuge on the, the foot of Mount Sinai. And as Moses stood there for 40 years, his identity began to be rewritten by God. He was humbled in many different ways. He took on a family. He had children. And he began to forget the identity that he once had while he was in Egypt and now became the man that God needed him to become Because at 80 years old, God stopped him in his tracks. And while Moses was out with the sheep in the morning, it states that he saw on the side of the mountain a bush on fire, but it wasn't being consumed by the fire. Making his way up there, you know the story, he got there and discovered that it was God himself. And now God was going to ask him to do what Moses had now uh, already put behind him, and that was to go back to Egypt once again for the sole purpose of delivering the people. Moses knew in his heart that that's what God had for him. But the 40 years that he spent in the wilderness, he most likely anticipated Jewish scholars believe that Moses then believed that, well, he had his opportunity and he failed initially. He tried to deliver the people, but the people wouldn't follow him, Exodus chapter 2 tells us clearly. And so in that attempt to try to deliver the people and, his, and has, how unsuccessful it was, He then came to the realization as 40 more years went by that maybe that opportunity was lost and now all of a sudden God is saying to him, now is the time. And Moses did what everyone would do, I think, at that point, thinking the way that he was thinking. You know, he tried to get out of it. Well, really, God? I'm 80 now, you know. I I don't speak very well. I I don't do these things very well. I don't even know who you are. How are you going to send, who am I going to go back and say, sent me? And then God says that I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. But Lord, I need something more than that. You got to give me some help. How about my brother Aaron? All right, fine. Bring Aaron with you. And I'm going to give you a staff. And that staff is going to be the method in which I use to bring the people out of the nation of Egypt. But as Moses contemplated undoubtedly his return to Egypt, it appears that that fear once again arose within his heart. 
And he needed to overcome that fear. And the Bible tells us that he did so. He overcame the fear of the wrath or the anger of Pharaoh there in Egypt by faith. And he was able to do so because he had saw him who was invisible. Was that speaking of his encounter there in the mountain in front of the burning bush? I don't know about you, but that would certainly change my life. Or was he speaking about something much more subtle? That his faith in God was already established, not through a dynamic experience such as the burning bush, but more along the lines of a simple instruction from, guess who? His mom. For if you remember, when Moses was born, he was hidden for three months. When they couldn't hide him any longer because the Pharaoh had uh, uh, sent an edict through the land that all Israeli male children must die when they are first born. When the midwives resisted that edict and said, listen, the women, they, they give birth so quick, we don't even have an opportunity to deal with the child at that time, and therefore they live. They kept Moses, they hid Moses away for three months, but when they could no longer hide him, they then sent him on his way in a basket in the river of Nile, and as he floated down the river, there at the edge of the river, just at that perfect moment, and undoubtedly God's perfect plan for Moses, the daughter of Pharaoh snatched him up out of the water in the basket and raised him him as a son for herself. Now, Egyptians, uh, historians tell us that Pharaoh's daughter had been barren and that she was most likely down by the river Nile to pray to the Nile God for a child. And one was born and one was given to her, unbeknownst the circumstances behind his uh, conception and birth. And so it was very plausible that he would then be raised in Pharaoh's home, that he would be in line in succession for the kingdom as Pharaoh himself, and he turned his back on all of that to identify himself with the Jewish people in which he truly was one of. But as he was being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, his sister saw that Pharaoh's daughter had drawn him from the water and said, listen, shall I find a, a Hebrew woman to nurse and to take care of the child for you? And she agreed to it and his sister ran back and got Jochebed, her, his uh, Moses' mother, to take care of him in the house of Pharaoh's daughter. And for three to four years, she took care of him as a nanny there in the house of Pharaoh. Who knows what she told him at that time? As she held her son in her arms, we don't know what she whispered in his ear. We don't know what she said, but we can imagine. We can speculate, and I think we can do it uh, I think we can do it intelligently, that she whispered in his ear about the Lord and who their God was. There's one named Jehovah who brought us out of Haran in the 
lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And one day we'll use someone maybe like you to deliver us from the hands of the Egyptians. The impact of a mother's role on a child can never be minimalized. The Bible tells us that Timothy, one of the great champions and teachers of the New Testament, two books written to him by Paul himself. Timothy learned about God and the Scriptures through his grandmother and his mother. And Paul... um, he, he is excited about that. He, he uh, exalts that idea that says he was trained by his grandmother and his mother. It was something that he felt was extremely um, gratifying. It was something that it, it was something to be uh, uh, prideful over in the sense of the mother did what she was supposed to do, even though she was married to a Gentile who did not believe in God. He, she instructed Timothy in the manner in which he should go, and Timothy became the great student of Paul the Apostle himself. It's incredible the role that moms have. Our children learn from us. They learn from what we say, but more importantly, they learn from what we do. As one wrote, he said, it more is uh, caught than taught. Our example to our children is incredibly responsible. We are responsible for our witness of Jesus Christ to our children. I don't know if it was the words of his mother or the burning bush in which he stood in front of or the combination of them both that brought him to a place where he could say that I see the one who is invisible. It's an interesting statement. It's a statement that we cannot just simply run through quickly and think that we know and understand what it means. It's something that we must take a moment of pause to consider. Because as he states this in the text, in verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is in visible. First, Moses had now made the decision to once and for all renounce all that Egypt had to offer him. He wasn't satisfied with the things of the world. He wasn't satisfied with the wealth, the prestige, the power. These things were not going to be the things that carried him forward. These were not the things that he valued and was willing to sacrifice his life to. He has now made the conscious decision, and the word left there in the Greek text tells us that he left by denouncing it, turning from it, and walking away from it in its totality. He made that constant decision to do so. He did so by faith. But that faith had to overcome the fear in which he felt in his heart and in his mind due to the fact of the anger of the king, which is undoubtedly Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was angry the first time when Moses had killed the Egyptian, but the second time, Pharaoh became even more 
frustrated, angry with Moses. For a series of plagues, one right after another, had been experienced there in Egypt. And God had showed himself strong. And as you read through the text and you look at each one of the judgments, each God that the Egyptians thought were going to save them from the wrath of Jehovah, the one true God, God demonstrated his superiority too. In each of the ten plagues, God, our God, Jehovah, Yahweh, showed that he was superior by denouncing and overthrowing each one of their personal abilities and capabilities in the ten plagues that fell upon the nation of Egypt. Leaving the Egyptian people with the understanding that their gods were nothing before him. That they were a mere creation of their own personal intellect and fantasy. God demonstrated that he was superior in every single way. So there just wasn't the ecological disaster there in Egypt. The populational disaster there in Egypt. The infestations and the plagues and the boils and all that occurred there in Egypt. It was demoralizing to the Egyptian people. They now realized that the individuals in whom they had been giving honor and tribute and and respect and, and loyalty to and allegiance to all of this time were not real. And that brought Pharaoh to a place where he was just seething in his heart against Moses. Finally, the last aspect, the issue of life, the issue of life itself was dealt with by God through the Passover. Where God said that he was going to destroy the firstborn of every Egyptian home, of every home period, that did not place the Passover blood amongst the door, above the doorpost there in Egypt, allowing the angel of death to pass over. Once again, this was targeted towards Horus and uh, Ra, the gods of light and the gods of life there in Egypt. And as Pharaoh gave himself on to the Egyptian gods, asking and begging for his one son's life, the angel of death moved through Egypt and caused such a horror there that the people there were now finally ready to release the children of Israel. But we know that the anger of Pharaoh continued because once they were released, Pharaoh went after them. And now in Moses' heart and mind, he has had it with Egypt. He is leaving and going after where the Lord would lead him to go. And he was now ready to surrender all to the Lord here at 80 years old. He is ready to give it all on to God. He is ready to leave and he is ready now to submit to everything that God would have for him. But he has to get over his fear. And that fear was resolved by him being able to see the one that was invisible. We have spoken about this numerous times in our study, but I think it's important for us to see this again. Let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. As we begin the 
issue of faith is described and defined for us here in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Meaning that faith allows me to have the assurance that what I cannot see is just as real as what I can see. Not only that assurance, but conviction. That the implications of those things that I cannot see have an equal impact or, uh, upon my life as those things that I can see. Now, of course, if you talk to somebody in this world who may, is not religious, maybe they're of an atheist background and so forth, they will insist that all that exists is the natural world around us, naturalism. That this is all that exists. And everything that exists here in this box of, the, of, of nature, of naturalism, has brought about and created those things that are in the box of naturalism. However, though, the Bible tells us something completely different. That the natural world in which we see was actually enacted by the supernatural world. It was God who spoke all things into creation. That the elements of our society and the elements of our uh, natural world all have design and structure to them that could not have been created and could not have been accidentally formed by a series of processes over a long, 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 long period of time. And they refuse to look at anything that would be outside the box of naturalism. And why should they? Because they don't believe that there is anything more to the entire story than what is in the box of naturalism. But is that true? Just because somebody believes something and just because somebody doesn't believe something doesn't make it true or false. There has to be a reality there to embrace what is not seen. And though I have never seen God face to face, I've seen the work of God in the world that cannot be explained by natural means. I've seen the Word of God not only predict but promise, and therefore whatever God promised, He's also able to provide. I see the effects of God working in this world, and faith allows me to see that. Faith begins with the acknowledgement that God exists. Biblical faith, that is. People can say that they have faith. But the question isn't their faith. The question is, what is there a faith attached to? Everybody can have faith. But what that faith is attached to, it makes all the difference in the world. Did anybody walk to church today? Anybody at all? You probably all drove, correct? Correct got in a car, and so forth. Realizing that when you got in the car, you opened up the door, you sat in the seat, you turned the key, the car started, you put it into drive, and you made your way to church. You had faith that over uh, thousands and thousands of processes are going to have to take place for that car to run properly to bring you to church. And then you say, yes, because it was engineered that way. Well, have you ever met the engineer? No, I've never met the engineer, but I know an engineer existed because he made my car. That engineer is a uh, a reality even though you've never met him. You've never seen him or her. And then as a result, you just make your way to church. 
See, God is working in the natural world in a supernatural way, which then allows us to see his involvement and his existence. Faith allows us to do that. And Moses says that I have now seen him who is invisible. And now that I realize that that is equally as much a reality, if not more, because I can make the argument that the reality here that we see here on this earth is incomplete without the reality of the supernatural world outside of it from a biblical perspective. But that being said, when an individual is able to overcome a, uh, a fear, when an individual is able to turn their back on the world by faith, they are an individual that has come face to face with the reality of the existence of God. And why do I say that? Because that's exactly what Moses says here. That's exactly what our text is telling us. That by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured seeing him who is invisible. It is that ability that we are striving for today. It is that that I'm going to bring to your attention this morning. I want each and every one of you to understand that fear is a natural thing for you to struggle with, but it is something that you can overcome. I will tell you personally that in my life it has often been fear that has been used to keep me from the blessings that God had for me. And it wasn't until I was willing to take that step out in faith to move past that position of fear then did I realize that God had something so much more on the other side of that reality. And this started very early on in my Christian faith. It started very early on where I would be posed to uh, experience God in a unique way, but then he would just fill my heart with, I'm sorry, my heart would fill with fear. And as a result, I would be reluctant to move forward in the process. So how do we overcome it? As one wrote, he said, fear is one of Satan's most effective and therefore most used weapons that he has. We are afraid of being thought different of or losing our job or our friends or our popularity or our reputation. We are afraid of criticism, often from people that we personally don't even respect, but yet we are fearful within the wake of their criticism. Throughout the Old Testament, you know, Abraham was afraid. When he went into Egypt, he lied about his wife Sarah to to protect her instead of trusting God. When he went to the Philippine city, he lied about her being her sister. Uh, And uh, he could have uh, suffered great consequences from that lie and God had to intervene. You remember the story. Let us think about the individuals like Aaron. When Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron, his brother, who he begged to come with them, started becoming uh, moved and motivated and fearful of the crowd that was surrounding him looking for a God to be created in the image of a calf. And so he capitulated and he created a calf there in their image because of fear. When they got to the promised land, 12 spies went in, 10 came out, said this no possible way that we could ever conquer the inhabitants of the land in which God is apparently giving us. And they were fearful and they were afraid. And that fear, and that fear led to unbelief and kept them out of 
the land in which God had for them for another 40 years. When Gideon was bringing his army together, they were fearful of the enemy. And they were shaking and cowering. And God said, you know what, Gideon, you got too many. Anyone who's afraid and is uh, trembling, let them leave. 22,000 people left at that moment. They were left with 10,000. God says, that's still too much. Got down to 300. And then it came to the disciples when they were on the boat and the waves were rough and the sea was uh, over... um, casting the the ship and they were thinking that their lives were in peril and then Jesus had to come and keep the storm at bay. It was fear that kept them from the faith in which they needed. And then Peter, because of fear, was able to deny the God in whom he loved so much three times in the face of an accusing little girl. Fear will keep you from doing what you should and fear will motivate you to do what you don't want to do. As one wrote, he said, fear is a great pressure and all of us are tempted at times to bend when standing for the Lord requires us to say or to do something that is unpopular or dangerous. But true faith does not fold under the world's pressure. So how do we come to that point? When Moses talks about the invisible, he is using a term that the Jewish people used all throughout the time, up until the time of Mount Sinai, where God identified himself. And as God identified himself to his people, they then had a further revelation and understanding of who their God was. But they used to call him before that in Hebrew, the invisible. And the writer of Hebrews is stating that in the minimal understanding and knowledge that Moses had of God, he still saw him as a reality. Notice how the verse is phrased, and you'll start to pick up on this. For he, is, he endured as, number one, seeing which is just the opposite of invisible, but then it is preceded by two words, who is. Seeing and who is speaks to the reality of the one who is invisible. Just because he is invisible doesn't make him any more real or any less real than if he were visible. That's what I meant to say. And he came to that point simply on the knowledge and the revelation in which he had at that time, being the instruction of his mom all the way to the bush in which he was standing before. Paul used this exact same kind of language in Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, when he writes, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the repairing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an inapproachable light, and whom has, no one has ever seen or can see. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the same notion that Paul is speaking of here. 
the invisible God, depicted perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, who was 100% God and 100% man. And as a reality, Moses saw God the Father as if he were a physical reality in the life of Moses. And therefore, he was able to overcome the fear in which he had concerning the king. And how did he do that? I think it was by the revelation in which David writes about in Psalm 27.1. And this is crucial for our time this morning. So if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27.1, I want to point out three things that David realized about the Lord that allowed him to overcome the fear in which he would be experiencing in any circumstance in which he would find himself. Of course, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There are three realities of God that are found in these verses that allowed David to overcome the fear that he would experience at any particular circumstance in which fear would be provoked within him. And those three points are the characteristics of God in the relationship with the individual, David, or ourselves. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord then is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? As a believer in Jesus Christ, the the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, undoubtedly, when David is writing these words to us, he has meaning to these words that allow him to overcome the fear in which he would experience at any given time. When he speaks about the Lord being his light, in the Old Testament case, it meant an understanding of God. It meant the joy of having a relationship with God. It meant a life with God rather than apart from God, which would be a life in darkness. When he talks about the Lord is my light, David is saying, God is with me. I am not alone in this endeavor. I'm not alone at this particular moment in time where I am faced with circumstances that appear to be overwhelming and are provoking me to great fear. At this moment, I do not stand alone. God stands with me. God stands with me. Growing up, I was pretty much a brat. And I... uh, my friends and I always thought that we were bigger and tougher than we actually were, and we would get into all kinds of problems because of it. And, but part of the realization I realized why we would talk so tough is because my friend, my best friend, his older brothers were two of the meanest guys in our community. And when we hung out with them, you know, we could be tough too, right? Because huh, look who's behind us. We could say things to people that we wouldn't undoubtedly uh, say nothing to otherwise, but we could be silly and we could be crass and we could be, you know, uh, you know, brats. And, uh, but we were confident because the brothers got our backs. Well, we have a father now who has our back. 
a heavenly Father who has our back. We are not alone in this. And whatever I face, God is with me. He'll never leave me, nor will He forsake me. And He is just asking me to act responsibly as a believer in Jesus Christ. He is asking me to trust Him. He is asking me to uh, rely on Him and depend on Him uh, so when I go through these things, I'm not going through them alone. He is asking me to remain humble and He will lift me up. He is my light. God is with me. David knew that. It was reality. God is with me. Even though I don't see Him, God is with me. I have an understanding. I have a joy. It is my life with Him. For God is with me. But not only is God with me, for He is my salvation. Though God is with you, we, don't, we also need to know that how God will act or react upon our need. And it means there in salvation, He is talking about being delivered from meaning physical or spiritual deliverance. It means victory for us in Him. That regardless of what circumstances I may find myself in, God is with me and through Him, one way or another, one meaning or another, I will have victory in Him. Because he's the author and the finisher of my faith. He knows why I am standing in this position uh, that I am. He knows why he has brought about these circumstances as he has. And I have the promise of the New Testament that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't know exactly what he's going to do in and through those circumstances. But what I do know is that being subjected to them, I will be therefore conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I don't have to be afraid. The circumstance in which I find myself in is not random. It's not purposeless. It has meaning because God is with me. God is allowing these things to happen for the purposes in which he sees fit to bring about the change in my life because he loves me too much to leave me the way he found me. So David is saying that not only is God with me, but he's going to see me through. And whatever that looks like, I can trust that. I can rely on that. I've already won. That's what David is saying here. I've already won. And even if these circumstances take my life, David says, then I am with the Lord in the house of the Lord forever. I win again. But he goes on to say one more. In whom shall I fear? It means to whom shall I bow to in fear? For the Lord is the stronghold of my life. The word stronghold there in Hebrew for the Jewish person would have meant a fortified city around the central aspect of the city. The central aspect of the city was the most valuable aspect of the entire city itself. It would have been where the capital was or the palace was 
or one of the uh, altars unto God was, it was the most precious port, point of that city. And it was a fortified city around that point. And David says that I am the most valuable thing to God, he says, and he is a fortified city around me, protecting me and guarding me. The reason for the fortified city was to protect the, uh, that precious place uh, from the possible exploited weaknesses in which it would have. So David is saying that what God is doing is that God is my stronghold of my life. He is my protector. He is my guard over me. And he is specifically protecting me where I am weak. As David wrestled with his frailties before God, God assured him that in his weakness, he would be strong. And so the writer of the Psalms, David, is asking us, if God is with you, if victory is already yours, if God is protecting you in your most weakest and vulnerable areas, then why should you be afraid any longer? But see, none of that matters unless you can see the invisible as a reality. And that requires faith. You need to have faith in these things concerning God. David saw them as a reality. He trusted them to be a reality in his life. And therefore, he assured his own heart and said, Who therefore shall I fear And of whom shall I be afraid? That's how we overcome fear, by faith. Trusting that God is with us. Trusting that He has victory for us. Trusting that He is our stronghold, protecting us as a fortified city. Protecting us where we are weak, allowing Him then to be strong. That's what God is saying to us this morning. And that's why he was able, that is Moses was able to do what he did. And that was to leave Egypt behind. Not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured, that is persevered. He was persistent to move forward and seeing him who is invisible. Let me give you three things to take away this morning. Number one. If we are going to overcome fear, the Lord would have us to turn from the world and to turn to Him in totality. We cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in God. God is looking for all of us. He wants us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As long as we have one foot in the world and we keep playing around with the things of this world and as long as we are getting distracted with the things of the world, fear is going to continuously creep up in our lives because we are going to desperately want to preserve those things of the world because we believe that that preservation will lead to security in an insecure world. And God's saying, no, The only way to find security in an insecure world is to turn from the world and totally embrace me. That's what he's saying. How do we do that? We do it, number one, in a daily prayer life with God. We have talked about this so many times and it truly warrants saying it again. 
A prayer life is not an option for a believer in Jesus Christ. It's a necessity. Spending time with God each and every day in a time of prayer, personally, alone, one-on-one with Him. And accompanying that prayer life with the second ingredient, which is reading of the Word of God. And many will say to me, and, I, and I'll talk with them, and, and they'll say, you know, I'm struggling in this area. And I say, I understand, it's not easy sometimes. You have to be pur- purposeful. You have to be intentional when you do this. Set a time in the morning, set a time at night. If you can't at night or in the morning, do it on your lunch hour. Don't negate this particular point of the Christian faith. Because you will find yourself in an anemic position before God. You will find yourself in an impotent position before God. Taking time with Him in prayer and reading His Word is so important. And I've noticed that those who do it each and every day have a strength that is apparent from those who do not. They have a faith, they have a confidence, they have a assurance. Just praying each and every day, spending time with God and His Word each and every day, purposefully doing it, intentionally doing it, at sometimes sacrificing their own personal pleasures and wants for the moment to take time to be with God. And when fear does arise, they have the assurance that God is with them, that God has victory for them, and that He will sustain them where they are weakest because He is strong. Number two, we must choose no longer to walk in fear, but to have faith. When we are confronted with fear, I believe it is at that point that we can choose to trust God. Fear is a natural reaction of our bodies emotionally. Fear can be extremely helpful to preserve our life, correct? You know, you go up to the top of the Sears Tower, someone says, stand on the edge, and your fear kicks in and says, "Uh, no, that is a bad thing, and I could fall, and then, you know, that would be the end of me. But fear can also be irrational at times, can't it? It's where then the Spirit has to come in to over come that irrational fear that is keeping us from doing what God would have us to do. And we need to make that decision. We need to make the decision, I'm not going to fear at this time. I'm going to trust the Lord. We can make that decision. We can control our feelings. I know that many are telling you, you just can't help the way you feel. Absolutely, that is false. That is truly false, right? Someone gets you mad on the highway. You have the opportunity to cut them off, veer in front of them, get out of your car, smack them around silly. But you don't do it, right? Your emotions tell you to do it. Your mind is telling you to do it. The song on the radio is giving you those muscles that you think you can do it. And yet... There's a rationale in the individual's mind that's saying, you know what, I can't do it or I'm going to get arrested. That means that the individual can control their emotions, can't they? 
We are told constantly that we cannot control our feelings. That is the greatest lie. In fact, the Spirit of God gives us self-control, allowing us to overcome our own personal feelings to do what God would have us to do. We need to choose to have faith rather than to fear. And then number three, this is key. Once we make that choice to have faith rather than fear, this is key. We must push through and watch God work. When I was, first became a Christian in 1986, as time was going on, I was growing in my Christian faith. It was one of those conversions, many of you know, was very radical in its, in its uh, in conception, you know. And um, my pastor asked me to join him to come in to a pastor's conference at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I just had to pay for my airfare out there and I had to fly out there and so on and so forth. And I went and purchased the tickets. And after I purchased the tickets, I had this aboding fear that just wouldn't dissipate. It was terrible. I was convinced that the plane was going to crash and God was going to take me home before I had a time to backslide. And so I bought the tickets. I couldn't sleep at night. I was a month from the trip. It was so bad that the week before the trip, I actually got up in the middle of the night and was physically sick. That's how fearful I was. But I really wanted to go. I really wanted to head out there for this. But everything was telling me that this was it. This is the end. This plane trip was going to bring it all to a close very quickly. So I finally made it to the day of the flight. And I was flying with a gentleman I did not know who was connecting there at O'Hare Field, a friend of someone else within our church. And we kind of just buddied up to take the next leg on to California. And as I made my way to the gate, I saw him sitting there and I joined him at the chair. Uh, and we started talking back and forth. And I'm sweating. I'm fearful. I keep walking to the window to see if the air, you know, are the engines still on? You know, are they screwed on well? You know, because I thought for sure I'm going down. I don't know why I felt this. I just felt it. It was immense. So I sat down with him and finally, just before we were getting ready to board, he taps me on the shoulder and he says something. He goes, hi, I know we don't know each other, you know, and uh, we're flying for the first time and I don't want to scare you. He says, but I've been having dreams and nightmares for the last two months that this plane could possibly go down. He felt the same way. And I'm like, great. <laughs> Great. And he was older in the Lord than I was. I said, what do you think we should do? Is that God telling us not to get on the plane? Or does God want us to get on the plane and come home? And, you know, I, what do we do? And we prayed. And we were both still afraid. But we decided to get on the plane. Well, because I thought it was my last flight, 
I started talking to the people around me, sitting in the different chairs, not only witnessing to them about the Lord, but asking if they wanted to trade for their carrot cake. That carrot cake was awesome on that plane. And as we were getting closer to California, you saw the Rockies, and then you see the desert, and you knew we were getting closer and closer, and everything seemed like, well, maybe we were just way wrong on this whole thing. And then we were getting closer to Orange County Airport, John Wayne. And we get in line to land, and as we are coming in to the airport, all of a sudden the buildings are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know how that goes when you're landing in there so forth. And then all of a sudden, just before we touched down, the plane's nose pulled up and you just heard this acceleration. <laughs> and we took off and like, a, like a bat. We just going. All of a sudden, we fly over the ocean and we hear from the captain that the front landing gear didn't go down and that we are uh, getting rid of our excessive fuel to make a belly landing in Orange County. I said, that's it, Lord. Thank God I had that carrot cake. Now I can go home and be with you. And we came back around and Roy just grabbed my hands. He goes, Eric, he goes, I've had enough of this. Let's just pray and let's get this plane landed. And so we came back around we saw the, tr- the fire trucks positioned. And I heard Roy just say, Lord, enough is enough. If you want us to land safely, then bring down the landing gear. And you know what happened? The landing gear came down. That conference changed my life. It was at that conference that God confirmed that one day he was going to call me to be a pastor. And I am to this day 25 years later. That's our God. Don't be afraid. Trust Him. Allow Him to lead you and to guide you to where He would have you to go. If I would have stopped then, I don't know what would have happened next, but I'm so thankful I got on that plane. When everything in my heart and my mind was telling me not to, that still small voice just gently pushed me in and allowed me to experience what I did experience. I said to the Lord on that plane, I said, Lord, I have nothing more to offer you. I surrender it all. And I think that's all that God wanted to know. Now I can use you. And sure enough, I look back at it now. And that's exactly what God has done. 